Dukes Up podcast. I am your host, Stephen. I talk about the good and the bad of MMA fights. Today, UFC 257, prelims only, no main card fights for this one. Before we get to the first fight, you can reach me via email, dukesuppodcast at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter at dukesuppodcast. A thought going into this is that we now have fans returning and after most of a year with dead silence for these fights, which I really enjoyed, we're getting a bit of a taste of the fans being back in the arena. And I got to say, I like it. And the reason is simple. They're better. They're, They're more appreciative of the fighters. I'm seeing cheering for, I'm hearing cheering for grappling exchanges. That was last weekend. I'm hearing a lot more appreciation for effort and and for heroics. And they're not just out for blood. They're appreciating the sport a little more. Maybe that's because they're only only the first few folks are getting in. So only the most diehard people who appreciate the sport are going in there. Or it could be that they're just glad to be back watching fights live again. Either way, I'm into it. These crowds are great. Keep these people coming. I like this. I did not like the old ones who booed every time there was a slight delay in action. I don't need to hear that. The first fight was Zaga Zumagulov versus Amir Albazi. The result here was that Albazi won by decision. Zumagulov had some upside. I saw speed and a pile of determination. That was great. He got up with about a minute to go in round three after being held down for a long time. And not only did he swing for the fences, but he did it with some variety. He was leading with body hooks, then leg kicks, then his overhand right. And it was probably his most effective minute of stand-up. I loved seeing that, and I liked the way he went about it. And it also coincided with Albazi fatiguing a little bit, and he was able to take advantage of that. Some downsides to Zumagulov's fight here was that he seemed to have some limited setup for his striking. He did have fast hands, like I mentioned, but he didn't do a lot of feigning, a lot of trap setting. It wasn't real advanced stuff. Another downside was that he had a ton of trouble getting up. Albazi was really able to hold him down. And maybe that's less Zumagulov's downside and more Albazi's upside. But nonetheless, it was a huge problem for him. In the stand-up, I saw Zumagulov biting very big on feints, which is a somewhat of an amateurish thing to do. I'm not saying he is an amateur, but if you've got a guy that's not setting up his striking all that well, it makes pretty good sense that he would be overreactive to somebody else's setups. Similarly, when he did avoid strikes or when he reacted to feints, he moved a lot. There was a sequence that I'll get into Uh, later on in the fight about that, or later on in this episode here. Albazi, the good. He looked pretty good overall. He had efficient stand-up compared to Zumagulov, and I say that in relation to his uh, feints were more effective. He didn't overreact when avoiding strikes like Zumagulov did, and he wung his punches a lot less. He had more straight punches, and his Striking was just overall more crisp. Now, that sequence I was just talking about with Zumagulov, he had a habit of dipping to his right when Albazi fainted, and it was a huge dip. This, I think, was a down, was a, a bad thing for Albazi here because he seemed to catch on to it. But the problem was that Albazi 
didn't have an answer for it. So he noticed it. He seemed like he purposely made Zumagulov bite in that same way three times in a row, but there was never a switch head kick. There was never a jump knee. There was never an uppercut aimed at that direction or even just a hook aimed at the body that likely would have grazed off his head because Zumagulov was dipping so much. So I thought Albazi did a good job of seeing what was happening, but he didn't have the tools always to capitalize on it. Between rounds two and three, Zumagulov's corner was slapping his face and yelling at him to pump him up. What is that? Is that still going on? Does Zumagulov like that? Or is that just his coaches doing it? This is a little bit about the division itself. During the fight, Anik said that, he said, this is nearly a quote, the fact that Albazi has one UFC fight and already has a number by his name tells you something. Albazi is ranked 15th. All that tells me is that there's 16 guys in the 125 division. The guy he had beaten in the UFC is Malcolm Gordon, and he's a guy who was also de- debuting. So there's two debuting fighters. One of them wins. Suddenly that guy's 15th. I think that says more about the state of the division and not Albazi's skills. Our next fight is Movsar Evloyev and Nick Lentz. The result here was that Evloyev won via split decision, which is insane. There was absolutely no way Nick Lentz won that fight. In fact, quite a few people didn't think Nick Lentz won a single round. I think he did win the first round, but boy, could I be convinced otherwise because those punches that Evloyev landed at the end were damaging and Nick Lentz was wearing it after that. I also scored the third round a 10-8. At that point, Lentz was beat down, so I gave it a 29-27, which a handful of other folks did too. All of that is just to say that giving it 29-28 for Lentz is ridiculous. There wasn't a single media fan, a media score for Lentz, and 95% of the 70 fan scores submitted to MMADecisions.com were for Avloyev. And the only dissenters were Russians, so they're either on their boy or maybe they're just trolling. Going into this fight between Lentz and Evloyev, the thought occurs to me that this is exactly the kind of matchmaking I don't like. Sometimes it's necessary, but I don't like when an older guy, a veteran like Lentz, who's definitely sliding down, gets fed to a very young guy, a very hungry guy like Evloyev. This was a late replacement. Lentz's first opponent wasn't much better, Mike Grundy. He was also young-ish. He didn't have a ton of fights under his belt, even though he was 32. But I guess that's just the reality. Not every old guy gets to pick who they're fighting. Lentz was never a superstar. He doesn't have the sway that a guy like Condit or Brown or Cerrone has. And most of those guys just want to fight it and think they still got a lot left anyway. If you didn't think you had a lot, you probably wouldn't fight. So I certainly don't blame Lentz for taking this fight. I just wish that the matchmakers weren't willing to feed him to a young lion. So some good about Lentz is that he's tough. This was honestly a pretty rough one to watch. There's a lot more bad about Lentz here. He went for two guillotines in round one. Now, Lentz is a guy that throws a ton of guillotines. However, he only has two finishes with guillotines in the UFC, so it's not as though this is his go-to move that always results in a win. And the reason I say this is bad 
Lentz going for two guillotines in round one is the way he went about it. First, it seems that if you're going to catch a guillotine, you're going to catch it. Catching a guy in a second and third attempt doesn't seem to work that often, but I'd love to see the stats on that. I think the problem here for Lentz is that it's not worth ending up on the bottom. If he's so active with his guillotine, if guys are afraid of it, that's great. You can use it as a tool. I wish he would have mixed it up a little more. I wish he would have grabbed the neck for a guillotine and used it to sweep, to end up on top, to get back to his feet, to distract Evloev, and then land knees or land elbows. Don't just roll to your back. And I think those things would have been effective. Probably the most noticeable thing about Lentz in this fight is how slow he looked. Now his cardio seemed to give out on him, and in round two, I wasn't sure if his punches were slow because his arms were tired from those guillotine attempts, which is, again, another good reason not to go for broke so many times, or if his cardio was just not there, or a little bit of both. But even in round one, and especially in round three, Lentz was just slow. I say this with affection and with goodwill towards Lentz, but I didn't see anything from him that makes me want to watch him fight again. I've enjoyed watching him fight over the years, but I wouldn't hate it if this was the last one for him. Evloyev, this was a bit of a showcase for him. Uh, he did damage fast with his ground and pound. That's one of the good things I saw about him. He only landed seven shots on the ground in round one, and I think all of them, or nearly all of them, came after he stood up in the final seconds. And Lentz, as I mentioned earlier, was really wearing that damage. It was highly visible. So I love damaging ground and pound. That was great. Overall, I thought his striking was sharp, and he had a heck of a jab. His cardio held up well, and I definitely want to see more from this guy. He does throw the shovel right hand, which I've been noticing more. Lately, I don't know if anybody's if people are throwing it more or if I'm just seeing it, but that's definitely a punch you've got to watch out for. He wasn't in any danger against Lentz because Lentz was so god-awful slow, but against a guy who's looking to counter and against a guy who's got more gas in the tank, that's a dangerous punch to throw. The next fight up is Khalil Roundtree Jr. and Marcin Pracnio. The result here was that Pracnio won via unanimous decision, 29-28s all across the board. These guys had some good and some bad each. This wasn't nearly as lopsided of an experience as the Lentz fight. Roundtree, some good things about him. After Pracnio came out in round two, he seemed to get a read on him. And I'll get the Pragnos first half of round two in a second. That eventually led to uh, the knockdown in round two that Roundtree got. And Roundtree's striking overall is powerful and far more precise than Pragnos was. Roundtree did struggle a little bit, though. He had trouble going first in the second half of the first round. He had trouble throwing punches first or kicks first. Later in the fight his cardio seemed to make it hard for him to go first. So in the first round, he's struggling with it. The second round was all round tree. He got the knockdown. He looked great. He landed body kicks. And then by the third round, even though his brain was in the right spot, his body was starting to give out. And the result was that it looked a lot like the first round in that he kept waiting and waiting and waiting for Pracnio to go. Roundtree's cardio totally failed him in round three, and there's just no excuse for that. I know this is a 
halfway around the world trip here. It's no joke, but you should be in better shape than Roundtree came into this fight. I don't know if something else was going on, but his cardio was a noticeable and significant obstacle to his success here. With a little bit of cardio, he wins this fight easily. It was his fight to lose. Pragnew did manage to take it. He had some good kicks. He had a lovely sidekick, especially in the first round. And he was changing it up nicely, going to the body and going to the head. Another good thing about Pragnew is that he was tough. He pushed like, uh, like you push on the last 100 yards of a mile. He was really wiped in that third round too, but he kept pushing and you could see it. You could see how hard he was working to keep going. And that's why if Roundtree had better cardio and he was fresh in round three, it's easy to take advantage of a guy that's pushing because it's almost impossible to not be sloppier than normal when you're that tired and when you're having to put so much focus into moving a body that doesn't want to move. So props to Pragnio's toughness and his resilience, and he didn't get taken advantage of in that third round. He also, despite being very tired in round three, made a miraculous recovery. Getting knocked down in the second round and coming out looking quite fresh in round three was impressive from Pragnio. This blew my mind here. In the first round, we saw those great kicks I talked about. The mixing it up, the sidekick, but then... When round two started, Pragnio comes out and he's just swinging his arms wild. He's throwing kicks with no setup. It was the, some of the sloppiest stand-up I saw all night. And it was just nuts. It was like a different fighter came out in that second round. And to further this line of thinking here or this line of observation, he comes out in round three and Pragnio's less sloppy. He suddenly tightened it up a little bit. Something about that second round did not sit well with him, and he was not doing a great job of holding it together. But even in round three, with his tightening up, he still made a lot of Bush League mistakes. He had a lot of amateurish habits. He ducked his head and looked at the floor when he throws his hooks, especially his overhand right. And fortunately, Roundtree did make him pay for those mistakes by stunning him with a real good uppercut in round three, which is what you do if a guy's staring at the floor wing and punches at you. Overall, I'm impressed with Pragnio's toughness, but not necessarily his ability, and Khalil just needs to get on an airdyne. He will not drop another fight like that if his cardio is in good shape. The next fight up is Juliana Pena and Sarah McMahon. The result here was that Pena won via rear naked choke in round three. The good from Pena was that she was very active and even effective from her back. In round two, she started throwing some hammer fists and landed maybe three or four of them, and they were damaging. We've seen Nico Price get a knockout with those strikes. We know that when you throw hammer fists, you can get leverage even from strange positions. So I liked seeing that from her. Pena landed big and she landed often when she got on top in round three. So despite some of her shortcomings, which we'll get to, she's really far closer to looking like one of the big dogs in the division than McMahon. Some more good from Pena. She had great pressure. She knew what she needed to do. And she landed some brutal knees from the clinch. Bad thing about Pena here that I caught on to was that she didn't want to get off her back very badly. Now, McMahon's a great wrestler, and maybe she couldn't, 
but I wasn't seeing the effort to do it. I wasn't seeing the effort to sweep or stand. The narrative seemed to be that Pena was probably looking for submissions, and she did make some attempts, although not a lot of big ones. But I think more important than anything is that she finished the fight once she got on top of McMahon in the third round. That's why you sweep. That's why you stand. Trying to win a fight from your back is difficult, and it's not a smart place to keep yourself. McMahon, bless her, I don't have a lot of good for her in this fight. Her stand-up really did look serviceable in round one, and she wasn't in a hurry to wrestle in that first round. That's great. That's what you want in general from a wrestler is not being in a big, huge hurry to wrestle. That's how you end up getting opportunities to get people down. So I like that. But there was a lot of bad with McMahon in this fight. And truthfully, McMahon's game in general is disappointing. In the first round, McMahon had over a minute of control at the end of round one where she threw two strikes. They were good. She landed a good elbow and a good punch. But where's the ground and pound here? And oddly, when I look at the stats after the fight, she was really only credited with throwing one and landing one. And I said over a minute, but that was just in a row. She had even more top control time than that for the round, and she still threw almost nothing. She also had the bad habit of settling into guard in round one and round two and seemed to make almost no effort to pass. It made it extremely difficult for her to land anything. She landed a good elbow in that first round. If she was throwing six or seven or eight of those elbows while she's on top for two or three minutes, this fight looks totally different. But by getting herself into guard and keeping herself in Pena's guard, she made it almost impossible to do. McMahon has addressed this uh, after the fight. She really struggled in round three. What she said was, I fought not to lose, which is a funny way to fight for somebody who's behind on the scorecards, or so I thought. That serviceable stand-up from round one is completely gone in round three. She's panicking. She's shooting like Tito Ortiz in 1999. She's seven feet away. That's it's not good, and, and more importantly, it's not the kind of composure and the kind of decision-making and the kind of ability that I would expect from a veteran with as much MMA experience, as much wrestling experience, and the fact that she is 40 years old. This isn't a 22-year-old who's never been in there. She's been in there, and she still lacked the composure to use her wrestling properly. Which brings me to my final thought about McMahon, and that's that she just has an incredibly limited skill set. A wrestler who's not, who has weak submissions and ineffective or non-existent grounded pound, come on. I can understand if a wrestler, especially somebody who came from wrestling, doesn't have a gift for stand-up. It's really a different beast than grappling than wrestling is. But there's no excuse at all for a wrestler to have limited ground and pound. That's how you get fools out of there. You take them down and you beat them up. McMahon, if she ever fights again and she ever wants to be effective in fighting, has to get some ground and pound. Some other thoughts about this fight or about the division really is that being ranked 7th for Pena and ninth for McMahon shows just how small the pond is for women right now. 
Their records aren't terribly impressive, neither one of them streaking. DC during the fight said, McMahon's gotten better on her feet, but she isn't quite comfortable. He said that, I think, at the very beginning of round one or just before the fight started. Number nine, the number nine fighter in the world isn't comfortable on her feet. Women's MMA hasn't been around as long as men's MMA, so it's not fair to compare them. The next fight is Brad Tavares and Antonio Carlos Jr. The result here was Tavares winning a unanimous decision with a couple of 20-30-27 scores and a single 29-28 score, which seems to be a continuation of some oddball judging. Some good about Tavares. There was lots of it. I really liked the way he fought tonight. Early in round two, Tavares gets taken down, and he got up. He couldn't have gotten up any faster. Every ounce of energy went to him getting back to his feet. That's the way to be. You don't stay on your back, even if you're a good grappler. You either sweep him or you get the heck out of there. The biggest upside for Tavares here was how crisp he was on his feet. He had good, hard punches, especially his straights. They were accurate. He was throwing quick leg kicks. Now, he did get a leg kick caught in round two that led to Carlos Jr. snagging a takedown. That was the one I mentioned earlier that he popped back up from. But after that, he started pulling that leg back even quicker. So he was aware of the danger, but he just didn't want to give it up. I think he thought that those leg kicks were effective enough to be worth the takedown risk. And I think he was right, and he did a good job of making it not impossible, obviously, but tough for uh, for Carlos Jr. to get a hold of his legs. In round two, Tavares drops Carlos Jr. and then kicks him in the cup, giving him minutes to recover and pretty much wiping out any chance of getting a, fi- getting a finish there. And I would just say that this is something that happens, but I think it happened because of a very poor decision on Tavares' part. The kick to the cup came because of a badly nis- missed knee that turned into a kick. And the reason I put this on Tavares as bad decision-making is because that's not the first time I've seen that. I've seen guys before throw a crap knee that's not even close. They, They were inside the foot. They didn't have it lined up. And then they, in desperation to land something, because in this case Tavares was chasing a finish, he flicks his knee out and lands in the cup. If he had just taken that missed knee put his foot back down, thrown a switch to the body, thrown a right hook to the body, thrown a jab. He could have thrown anything. He likely would have gotten the finish, and I think that that silly desperation kick from a missed knee is what cost him that opportunity. So there were a couple of good things about Carlos Jr., Antonio Carlos Jr. in this fight, but truthfully, I have more bad things to say about him. He did have a nice jab. He is pretty strong, but He seems to misuse his strength. He throws a lot of arm punches. He bends at the waist during his takedowns, not at the knee. He's really pretty sloppy and uncoordinated overall. But he's not dumb and he's not uncomfortable, especially on his feet. He's got that rangy, awkward Abe Lincoln body that Nico Price and Tony Ferguson kind of have. And I thought that was funny because they also show some similarities in the way they strike. The worst thing about Carlos Jr.'s stand-up is probably that he throws a lot of arm punches. Despite having that nice crisp jab, his rear hand is atrocious. He was almost hammering it out there. I mean, it was just bizarre. 
he's just kind of a floppy, uncoordinated guy. And this translated to his takedowns. And I know he's a guy that needs to get a takedown to win a fight, but they're not great. He gets a hold of Tavares often, but even when Tavares isn't being a ninja and bouncing out of it like BJ Penn, he's not transitioning between double legs, single legs, high crotches. He's not throwing in hip tosses. He's not mixing up his takedowns. And when one fails, he keeps trying it rather than switch to something else. Often, if you miss a guy on a double leg, especially if you've just bent at the waist, you can step around and drag them down. You can kick a leg out. You can grab a single leg. There's a lot of transitioning to do, and I didn't see much of that from Antonio Carlos Jr. And this was especially prominent in the last minute of the fight. He stalled on a takedown, had Tavares against the fence, and he did what he did the whole fight. He just kept trying to get that one type of takedown and remained stalled. He completely guaranteed his loss, which is a dumb move. However, maybe he knew he wasn't going to land a Hail Mary on Tavares and get a finish, and he just saved himself from catching another dozen punches to the head. In that case, it's smart. It doesn't, or at least for his health. It doesn't look good. You don't gain fans. Dana's not impressed. Sean Shelby's not impressed. But I guess there is some upside. This was the exact opposite of Zuma Gulov's final minute, where he came up blasting. A couple other thoughts about the fight. Uh, there were two groin strikes, one from each of these guys. In the first round, Carlos Jr. needed Tavares right in the cup, and it was a big one. And they just took a quick break and came back. That's a big enough foul that, to me, a point needs to be taken off. Maybe the other one was big enough, too. I would say yes. I think a point needs to be taken off every time there's an infraction of any significance. And both of those were significant infractions. Mark Goddard, one of my least favorite referees, in round three, he pulls them off the fence for inactivity. But it wasn't a 50-50 position. There was some stalling going on, but there was also some light action. I just don't like that. I don't like when fights get stood up. I don't like when people lose an advantageous position because it's not fun enough. I think you should let them fight and let them figure it out. And outside of blatant stalling, you definitely should not stand somebody up or pull them off the fence. The last fight on the prelim card was a barn burner, Armin Saryukin and Matt Frivola. Of course, this was a late replacement from Saryukin. He came in to fight Frivola on pretty short notice. The result here was that Saryukin won via unanimous decision. It was good. That was the right call. I saw lots of good from both of these guys. Frivola landed a heck of a lateral drop in round one. He was relentless. He's a dog. He was relentless in his attack, and he was relentless in getting to his feet. This was another guy that wouldn't stay down. I loved that. We didn't see that from Pena. We did see it from Tavares, and we did see it from Frivola. I love when guys aren't willing to be on their backs in a fight. I think it pays off. I know it pays off. And I think it gains you a lot of fans, too. People don't like when folks are okay just laying on their back. Frivola wasn't all good, though. In the first round, almost the whole round, his distance in striking was way, way off. He did end up finding the distance at the end of the round, but he 
needs to find some way to get acclimated, to find his distance a little bit sooner before he comes out and starts throwing some of the bigger stuff he was throwing in round one. So if Frivola finds a way to get his range sooner, he'll be way better off for it. Maybe the worst thing I saw from Favola here, Favola here was that he didn't have a counter for the takedowns. Like I said, he was relentless in, in, in stopping them and in getting up, but he didn't have a damaging offensive counter for them. He didn't have an uppercut. He didn't have knees ready. Uh, he never really made Saryukin pay for takedowns, and Saryukin was also relentless in his pursuit of those takedowns. In round one, Saryukian was wrestling with his legs right away. That was great. You've heard Daniel Cormier especially talk about that because Khabib's so good at it. Wrestling with your legs is effective, and we saw that from Saryukian, which is a real good sign that he's got a lot to offer. More than just his wrestling and his ability to hold a guy down, Saryukian showed some offensive capability. He could stack and pack, especially in round two. He was all over Frivola and he landed some nasty nasty damaging ground and pound that's what you need when you're a wrestler you need your takedowns to be a major threat and it makes it much easier for your stand-up to be effective if that's the case I was impressed that his cardio held up well he's a big guy he missed weight but he was still pretty fresh he wrestled constantly he threw over a dozen takedowns the bad about Saryukin, uh, he got tagged. There wasn't a lot I didn't like. He obviously wasn't perfect, but there was nothing glaring, and I really liked what I saw from him. Both of these guys were exciting. Frivola was maybe a little outmatched, and Saryukin appears highly skilled and fairly dangerous, especially that second round stack and pack. I want to see more from both of these guys. I really look forward to it. That's the show this time. Remember, you can email me, dukesuppodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, at dukesuppodcast. I will see you next time.